you don't we had no idea what was going to happen through during the lead up but then when you got on that boat it could all go wrong and but I, I don't know I just I knew with Charlotte and I that we, we put we both put in so much effort and we do it for ourselves and we do it for each other so it's like when you go into business with someone you know who you're going into business with you get that partnership it's a partnership agreement but there are teams and actually that's quite an interesting point who who have done challenges like this or rose like this before and they've come together last minute or they don't know each other that well they don't know each other's personalities types down to like a very granular level and so that when things are going wrong during the lead up, the campaigning, or actually in the challenge itself, you don't know how to deal with each other. And I think it's really, really difficult to try and work that out while you're in a stressful situation. Welcome to the How They Lead podcast, hosted by Benjamin Wade and Ben Stocken. This podcast is dedicated to exploring the world of high performance, showcasing examples of how individuals and teams can reach their full potential. Together, they'll be inviting amazing guests who have defined or represented high performance in their own right. From world record breakers to individuals who have achieved first in their fields, the How They Lead podcast will showcase a diverse range of guests, each with their unique stories and insights to share. So join us as we challenge traditional ways of doing things, explore new ideas, methods and possibilities, and evolve the way people perform. Jess, thanks for joining us on our latest episode of How They Lead. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Really excited. Well, no, it's going to be great. I think this one really interesting, given what I know about you and your background. And hopefully our listeners will be able to take away some nuggets of information based on your experience and they can develop themselves as individuals, but take it back to their teams and businesses too. So really excited to hear about this one. Brilliant. Thank you. I think if we can kick it off, just hearing who you are and a little bit about your background. So like you said, my name is Jess and Jess Oliver. I think the main reason why you guys have invited me on today is because in 2021, I rode the Atlantic Ocean with my best friend and teammate, Charlotte Harris. And we'd never rode before, knew nothing about the ocean. And we achieved the world record for the fastest female pair to do so. So I think that's probably why I'm here today. Wow. Yeah. Well done. Big applause for that. That's incredible. So what, what made you want to do it for a start? No experience, but you managed to break a world record. That, well, that's it. Well, I mean, I've been best friends with um, Charlotte for ages, and I think there's lots we can talk about from like a team dynamic perspective. But our whole friendship for like ten years since we met at university had been centered around hockey, but also spark partying. That was the end of it. So we decided then in October 2019 that we were going to sort of change the narrative of our friendship and do something a little bit different. So we signed up to a charity boxing event. Neither of us had boxed before. We trained for three months, raised money for the charity Mind and competed in White Collar Fight Club. We both won our matches. And so after that, we had a great night out, as you can imagine. And then after that, we were sat there on the Monday. We thought, you know, that was amazing. We really channeled that energy into something slightly different. What can we do that's bigger? And how can we raise money for homelessness, which is the next cause that we had identified? And she worked for Diageo at the time. And she said, well, why don't we do this? The Talisker Whiskey Atlantic Challenge. And Talisker is part of Diageo, who sponsored the race. And I was like, don't be so ridiculous. That's ridiculous. We've never rode before. We don't know anything about the ocean. And then I think the next week I was like, shall we just sign up for it? And then we did. And that was that. We didn't really have as much of a background into what we were signing up for as we should have. But that was basically the story of how we took the plunge, I guess. 
All right, I've got to come in here. Oh, there's so many questions. I've got, to, I've got to come <laughs> in here. I've got to come in here. Okay. So, so hang on a second. So had you rowed in a boat <laughs> before you signed up? Never. Okay. Never. I honestly would... Had you been on a rowing machine? No, is that the other thing? I don't think I had... <laughs> I think like maybe, obviously, we'd probably be on a rowing machine once or twice in the gym, but okay. we didn't know how to row. But I don't think that was the challenge. The challenge, it could, it could have been anything. Yeah. But we just wanted to do something that was big and different. Why did rowing come up then? If 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 you hadn't had any interest in it, if you never rowed before, only because of the Talisker Whiskey Atlantic Challenge was part of Charlotte's company's group, so she knew about and it. That was just the link. I think okay, there was a, yeah. I think, yeah, I think there was a guy who was doing it the year before, and she was a bit like, "Well, if you can do it, we can do it." So that was okay. that. <laughs> Okay, cool. So, so this is, um, I mean, so the, the kind of the, I guess the output of this podcast is the objective is to, to give people like useful leadership information from a self-leadership perspective, team ships, a collaboration, and then the other ship, boat, do you see where I'm going with this, yes. is about is about followership. It wasn't a pun. That's how our business, our business is built on <laughs> that philosophy, but thank you. The three pillars. No, that's fine. That's fine. It's, it's completely fine. So, there's there's like some role modeling, some self-leadership and like you two, your friendship, etc. So there's a lot of trust in in you saying to each other, you and it's Charlotte, isn't it? Yeah, Charlotte. Yeah, you and Charlotte saying to each other, saying to each other, okay, cool. So yeah, we've we've done the white collar boxing. Now let's let's put ourselves in a boat across the Atlantic, and neither of us are skilled up to do this yet. So how does that go from two friends that know each other from university and have obviously got shared experience and, and enjoy going out to we're now going to embark upon a world record-breaking kind of journey? Well, at the beginning, we didn't realize it was going to be world record-breaking, but it's an interesting point because the dynamic of our friendship did change. And not, not the friendship part, but how we were together, how we structured ourselves as a team. So we had to learn quite quickly that this wasn't just a happy-go-lucky friendship. We're now a team with a goal and we've got, two years to get to the start line so that was that was one side of the challenge it was as much about rowing the ocean as it was about learning how to row certifications navigation water manning all this all this crazy certifications and course you had to go on but it was also about campaigning branding ourselves as a team engaging with corporates so we had to divide and conquer and it was taking the 10 years worth of friendship almost disregarding them to a point but understanding how our sort of practical skill sets and how we can reincorporate that into a fully functioning it's almost like a corporate team and how we're going to manage ourselves over two years so yeah it was great that we had such a foundation to start a business together because that's kind of what it is like starting a business but then we had to really trust that the other person was going to to be able to deliver on what was their allocated tasks. And that was kind of new because we've not really done anything like that before as a friendship. Okay, so you're like a, you're like a startup, aren't you? It's like a... It is like yeah, a startup. Yeah, like a little... Bring all those different skill sets together. Yeah, and we had, to, we had to set up business accounts. We had to brand ourselves. We had to work out what our USP was. We had to build a website. We had to ha- configure marketing materials, brochures. How are we going to engage with different corporate groups? How are we going to engage with high net worth individuals? And none of that we had done before, even from like a personal standpoint, by that point, neither of us had set up a business. So there was a lot of learnings. And yeah, it wasn't always easy at the beginning because we'd both try and start working on a bit of marketing material and then there'd be a bit of conflict there. So then it was like, okay, you do that. I'll do this. And let's just meet up every single day, daily stand-up style and track ourselves how we're going. And so, yeah, but it worked quite well. You mentioned the conflict there. And was that a worry on your mind that you were going into this as friends and actually it might make you or break you because i've got a a couple of people that i know who have rode similar oceans and they don't talk to each other anymore 
it's so, so was that a worry yeah so it was never a worry um but it's always like it, you have to consider it you don't we had no idea what was going to happen through during the lead up but then when you got on that boat it could all go wrong and but I, I don't know. I just, I knew with Charlotte and I that we we, put, we both put in so much effort and we do it for ourselves and we do it for each other. So it's like when you go into business with someone, you know who you're going into business with. You get that partnership. It's a partnership agreement. But there are teams, and actually that's quite an interesting point, who, who have done challenges like this or rows like this before. And they've come together last minute or they don't know each other that well. They don't know each other's personalities types down to like a very granular level. And so that when things are going wrong, during the lead up, the campaigning, or actually in the challenge itself, you don't know how to deal with each other. And I think it's really, really difficult to try and work that out while you're in a stressful situation. So yeah, we were lucky that we had such a foundational friendship and just really understood each other. And did you do anything extra other than just be friends to work out how each other liked to operate or communicate? Or did you set boundaries that when an awkward discussion came up, what sort of things did you go through? Because I think listeners could take away a lot from that. And I think that's an interesting point as well is actually, yes, we did have that foundational friendship group, but that didn't automatically lead us to just know everything about how anyone was going to react in different circumstances. So every time something went wrong or every time that we were stressed or every time that we were tired, we stopped and we spoke about it and how we were going to deal with it. And we came up with quite a useful technique. It was called LT, which is essentially low tolerance. So having been best friends for 10 years, we'd always be at each other and messing and, oh, you know, banter and all that kind of stuff. But actually, when you're in a serious situation or when you're tired or you're trying to get a job done or maybe someone hasn't quite delivered or maybe I wasn't training as hard as I could be, that kind of thing, it was, okay, low tolerance. I'm not cross at you. I'm not, I'm just, I'm tired. I'm frustrated with myself, but I can't deal with, you know, your banter right now or whatever. So we, we, liked, we worked out how to sort of deal with each other and how to let the other person know that it wasn't quite up to scratch what they were doing. They needed to be a bit better, but it was never confrontational. And it was just, it, look, it's not you, it's me. I just... We need to work through this as a team. Self-awareness. Yeah, so it's, yeah, 100% self-awareness, but not just self-awareness for yourself, but also self-awareness really for the other person. I could look at Charlotte sometimes and be like, that girl is tired. She doesn't want this right now. Or like, I'll pick up the slack and vice versa. So, yeah. It sounds like you as a pair and just from your sort of bubbly nature, you kind of always operate in that sort of stretch zone as opposed to comfort. A lot of businesses, teams operate in that comfort zone and then pop into stretch. But how did you stop sort of burnout, especially before you'd even set foot in the, in the boat? We did burn out. Like we, our self-control isn't brilliant in the sense that we had 60 days worth of snacks and we ate them in 10 days on the row. So we both operate in a very high energy space. And then when we crash, we crash. So we did even over the two year period, there was sort of build up, build up, build up. And then it was a kind of a crash period. And then just before we went to Lagomero, which is where we start the race, we were exhausted. We were full-time jobs, end of a two-year campaign. Not everything was complete that we wanted to get done. So we were in burnout. And that's actually a more difficult place to get back from because you kind of keep going, don't you? Even if you're starting to feel burnt out. My interest was piqued when you said snacks, I'll be honest. So 60 days worth of snacks, ate them in 10 days. And you've kind of described your, you know, you know, you know that you guys operate as a, as a team, very high energy. The, yeah. The, the performance, the candle burns hot. And the problem when the candle burns hot is eventually you fall off a cliff. So how to so tell us a bit more about, so you turn up a bit burnt out as a team, ready to compete at something you've never done before. 
which is pretty scary as well. Like rowing the Atlantic Ocean, it's not like, you know, you're crossing the channel, which is also a pretty decent row. Hard as well, yeah. Yeah, which is hard. <laughs> I don't want to take that away from anybody. Well, on the channel, yeah. No, I mean, I know someone that's done the channel on a pedalo, which is Ooh, different, a different, different conversation, game. Yeah. different game. Yeah. Um, so talk to me about how, how have you learned, what have you learned, and then how did you learn to recover from those burnout moments? It was, re- it, uh, do you know what? It's great because we had burnt out from the campaign. We arrived in Lagomera and we had two weeks before the race. So there's no more campaigning we could do or preparation, just sort of the final bits tinkering on your boat. So we had two weeks and we had the biggest blowout. It was great fun. There were other rowers there. We partied. We, you know, like hung out as a team and we hung out with other rowers. And that was kind of like a mental decompression from the campaigning. But as soon as we got on that boat, we did exactly the same thing. You're meant to row two hours on, two hours off, two hours on, two hours off. You're meant to look after yourself and you're meant to eat your meals and you're meant to do it very calculated and professionally. And we got on that boat. We looked at each other and said, we could just row together the whole time. and It would be great. And that's what we did. We did for 10 days. We threw everything to the wind. We didn't throw in patterns. We didn't eat properly. We only we rowed together completely. We were rowing like 16 to 18 hours a day. Most of it was together. We were only eating snacks. We were living off paracetamol. And for 10 days, we were like, oh, no, for seven days, it really, really worked. The adrenaline and everything really pushed us through. For the final three days of that sort of 10-day go-nuts period, we burnt out again. And we thought because we were doing so well with this complete strategy of hell to the hell to the leather, um, hell to the wall, I don't know whatever that saying is, but we thought that hell to the leather, we thought that if we stopped that, then we were going to start losing ground and people were going to catch up with us. But then when we started really declining and we had that burnout, that's when we really looked at each other and said, look, this is an endurance race. We're not going to be able to continue this. We need to move into that sort of two hours on, two hours off pattern. And actually, that's kind of like a startup culture anyway. You go, you push, you push yourself into, your, into, into, into a level where you're going, actually, we can now maintain this. And sort of once you're into that maintenance stage, then you can start increasing consistently. And that's what we did. Um, so, but that wasn't a strategy that we thought about. It's just because we were like, we need to go hard. But actually, if you bring it back into life, it's, it works well. It's like, push yourself, but know when to stop or when to be more consistent. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Was that enough to give you the competitive edge thing? So you talked about the, the world record, or maybe we'll delve into that later. But were you well ahead of the, the, the rest by then? Or was your technique not quite on par? No, no, that worked. The reason that we did that two up strategy was because three hours into the race, we had a complete sense of humor failure. Like, what are we doing here? We looked at the app, which tells you where all the other teams were, and we were we were quite far at the back. And we were like, oh, we've you know we've had a great time in Lagomera. We've worked really hard for two years. We're not going into this race and not performing. And that's when we got on the oars together and just rode for seven to ten days. But and then that's what gave us the competitive edge. We really pushed ahead of all of the other pairs, some of the other teams of threes and things like that. But it's when we started kind of losing momentum that we went into that more consistent controllable strategy yeah structured approach yeah okay i think that worked well for us and i think if we were to do it again we we are doing again but if we were going to do something like that again we would do the same but it would be more considered yeah and what what motivated when you when you'd eaten all your snacks and you'd burnt out and 10 days later what was the motivation apart from each other what what motivated you what what deep down kept you going the first 10 days were that whirlwind the next 10 days we were just kind of we were going through the motions and, you know, we were, we were making good headway. And the motivation was there because it was the kind of the first half of the row and we were still pushing forward and actually this is interesting and all this, everything, you know, we were kind of focused. But what really motivated us was we spoke to another boat on day maybe like 
20 the other day. And they said, how many miles do you have to go? And we went, I don't know. We'll have to ring the co- our coach. We'll have to ring home to find out. And they said, well, no, you can, you can put it on the clock on the boat. And we were like, I can you? <laughs> I mean, we were prepared, but we were, there were some other things that we should have known maybe. But putting the miles <laughs> to go on a clock on the outside of the boat, so that when you're rowing, you're watching it, you're going, oh my God, okay, well, I've done, I've done four miles and I've done three miles. And then we worked out that actually, if we did 60 miles a day, we were going to get the world record. And if we were doing 60 miles a day, we were doing five miles every two hours, which is a shift, then we were going to get the world record. So suddenly, instead of being like, we have 2,000 miles to go, we have 1,000 miles to go, let's just get on and row. It was, you've got five, two hours to row five miles and that that small measurable KPI goal, that was a game changer. That's what motivated nice, us. Nice, yeah, broke down to those achievable, yeah. achievable chunks. 100%. Directly related to, well, we've just done that with our H1 sort of targets. It was, yeah, yeah. we were quite far off. We probably, we'd sat back on our haunches a little bit, but actually as soon as we did that, put it up on the wall there, everyone came around like, oh, it's quite a competition now. Oh, we'll break it down into how many, how yeah, many yeah. Yeah, pounds per day and how many calls we need to achieve that. Just breaking it up into those, like you say, those KPIs and holding yourself to account and giving you something to focus on. But those small KPIs, because even like you have, a, you have your quarterly goals or you have whatever, but going actually today or this week, I need to do this. And then you know that you've done it or not. And then over time, it's, it's exponential. It, it's completely, that's how I do everything now. It's breaking it down into the most granular piece I can do and tick it off. Yeah, because thousands of miles across the water means nothing really. But actually, how many, how many miles per hour? Oh, and actually, you can see that it's realistic. In- and I think there's, there's, a really, there's a really important like business, life, and sport and adventuring lesson there that when you are the person with, with the vision or, or, or you know, the, 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 the end goal, like actually how you communicate that, whether it's, whether it's a team of two or whether you've got a thousand people in your organization, how you communicate that, like you might have the, the, the vision of the horizon and the summit of the mountain. There we go, nice. summit of the mountain. Um, but actually everyone else is in their day-to-day stuff, like looking down at the footpath, just one step, one step, one step. And so the best way to communicate it down so it fits in their world and their psyche to get their buy-in, so that they can collaborate and contribute, you've got to reverse engineer it to be like, well, what does this mean to this individual? I think what you what you guys were able to do there was take a thousand miles arbitrarily or whatever and, and reverse engineer that to go, all I need to do is five miles in two hours. And then it's over to Charlotte. And it's self-accountability as well, isn't it really? Because have you done enough to reach a 3000 mile target? Well, I don't know. Have you rode five miles in the last hour? Yes. Okay. Well, yeah. Self accountability. You've done it. But it's really it's 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 good on a two person team. But and Charlotte and I, I'd say I would get on those horses. If I hadn't done five miles, I'd really be crossing myself. And she would be the same. And you'd you'd go back into the next one. Sometimes you couldn't have any control, right? Because a lot to do was weather. But sometimes you do seven miles and things like that. But um, when I start a project now and anything, it's yes, you've got your long term goal, you've got your long term strategy. And then you break it down into the chunks and then you break it down for, the, for individual people. And then you look at it on like a day-to-day basis and you go, okay, and everyone's being brought along the journey and everyone knows what they're doing and they can see what they're achieving to the higher goal. And it just, it just works. It's simple stuff, but it just works. It, it's simple and it's logical. And I, I think there, there, there was, there's been a bit of a, like a move away in some like loads of the industries and businesses we we kind of we support and enable away from KPIs and metrics because you don't want to hold people accountable to KPIs because it's a bit you know it might be a bit boiler room etc. But actually, I think that's there's a reality coming back that 
the right metrics and the right KPIs, as long as people understand the why behind them, yeah. are really, really powerful. Qualitative, not quantitative. No, quantitative, quantitative. Not qualitative. Yeah. Yeah. Something that you can put a number on and you can see that you, you can see you start achieving that number. It's otherwise it's it's in, you know, left up for interpretation and that's where it gets sort of difficult to comprehend across a big project. It, it takes time as well. It, it sacks capacity to to set them. But once you have set them, it pays dividends, doesn't it? Mm. Quite often companies don't have the time to do it, so they, they never get done. Well, yeah, yeah exactly. literally. Okay, so fall off a cliff, um, not, not an actual cliff, fall off a cliff, kind of recover. I, I just want to just go into the detail a little bit more. So there, were, there, there, was a, there must have been a moment where you were rowing two up and, and there, were, there, was, there must have been a conversation, a moment that made you change from rowing together to rowing individually. What was that conversation? I'll tell you what it was. So we had, we had decided on day seven that we were going to stop this crazy rowing. We were like, we're burnt, we're tired now, we're burnt out. And it's just, you know, Murphy's Law because that night was the biggest storm. It was huge and it was pushing us backwards. So we couldn't, we couldn't change our strategy. That, that was an actual time when we should have got on the oars together and rowed together. So we'd made the conscious decision day seven that we weren't going to. And then we had another two days of storm where we had no choice but to row together. And then after that, I think something that I like to do when I'm in a stressful situation is reorganize. So I reorganized the whole boat. And then Charlotte was like on the oars and I had all the food out everywhere reorganizing. It. And we looked at each other, we're like, maybe it's time that we really, we really just do this two hours, two hours, two hours. And that was it. But we had kind of made the decision before and then we couldn't because of the weather. And then there was another trigger point where we were both so exhausted. I think she had seriously bad blisters on her hands and like you'd open a plaster and it would pass into her face. And we, and I was just going, trying to rearrange the boat. And we were like, we're not okay. We're not well women here. So that was it. But it was an interesting point actually there. It's like, we'd made a decision and then other factors meant that we couldn't. So it was almost like we'd made the decision too late. And that was interesting as well. But when we did, when we did was sort of on day 10, move into the two hours on, two hours off. After about 48 hours, we were really picking up pace again and we were moving away from the pack again. So, yeah. And how did that affect you sort of mentally now going from a close-knit pair to almost operating on your own? We like to talk about self-leadership and holding yourself to account. You could have easily just sat there and pretended to rope <laughs> and then handed over. Well, this, you, you absolutely could. I mean, there were a couple of times on the yours, especially at the beginning, where you were so delirious with tired. And it's because of what we did in those first 10 days that we haven't gotten ourselves into a good pattern. But... I remember being on the oars once and I was literally falling asleep. And I just thought to myself, I'll, I'll lie back for 10 minutes because I physically couldn't row. And, she, and Charlotte was in the same situation sometimes as well. And, you know, you, you have to hold yourself accountable. If you do that once, then fine. If you do that twice, then okay, fine, you're delirious. But if, if it keeps happening, what are you not doing in those times off that you should be making yourself better for when you're on shift? And we were both kind of good at that in the end. It was like, you know, if we weren't going to hit our five miles, we're, we're self-critical of ourselves than we are to the other person so yeah we I think we both had ourselves quite accountable and I only got delirious a few times after that first one because you just made sure that you slept you made sure that you ate correctly so yeah a strange question but feedback did you give each other feedback like when you swapped over from rowing did you ever sort of sit down and say what works what doesn't like best practice like don't do this because I've got horrific pussy blisters or try this or do you know what no but that's not not intentionally but we'd, we'd come up with like a good new trick and then we'd tell the other person about it and then they'd ignore it because we've got our own way but actually that's a really interesting point because some people do ask us you know what would you have done differently and I keep saying you know it's actually more what would we have done the same or what would we slightly tweak but I do think maybe feedback whilst we're thank you so much for that lesson feedback throughout 
it's just as important as you know working it out for yourself so yeah i think we will do that going forward i think he keeps going going forward we are yeah. Does this mean we're your high-performance psychologist for the next, it must be. the next event? It must Great. be. Great. We'll, we'll come Fantastic. and join Fantastic. Well done. Well, I'm the only person in this world without West Peak branded on me right now, so. Okay. We'll, we'll oh. get some to you. We'll get some to you. <laughs> get some. Get some bow, a bow sticker. Oh, look at I that. Think. Nice. There you go. Yeah, would, would you like a gold <laughs> boat? I mean, it sounds expensive already. Me saying bow sticker yeah, sounds expensive. Sticker, I'll back sticker. away from that. I'll back away from <laughs> that. That is expensive. See. Not too expensive. <laughs> <laughs> um, you should be saying great value, great investment. Great value. It is great investment. investment. I won't yeah. plug it now, but it is. <laughs> okay, good stuff. Okay, so this this is this is really interesting, I guess, in terms of like team dynamics, et cetera. And you can really extrapolate out how the lessons you've learned on a kind of confined space in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. You can see how they relate to, to teams, small teams, yeah. businesses that are growing, but also people leading people one-on-one and, and being responsible for themselves. Talk to me about conflict. So, well, we... How did you manage conflict on the boat? And then how do you manage it now? Okay, so good one. So the, the way we managed conflict when we were campaigning, because we didn't really have any on the boat, which is interesting. It was when we were sort of at the beginning of our real campaigning experience. That's when we were going from friends into being a team. We had one falling out because we were tired. And that's when we came up with LT, low tolerance. And then we never had any falling outs then. It was more, it wasn't so much conflict with other people, but we did have people telling us that we shouldn't be doing, we shouldn't be ourselves. We should be approached this very much more professionally because we're kind of jovial and joke, joke a lot. And, you know, like if you, if you looked on our Instagram or something and we were campaigning, it was all of the things that were going wrong as opposed to all the things that were going right that people would normally post about. So that was interesting. And I think we just trusted ourselves and our process and our team. And we were a bit like, look, we get your feedback and we hear you, but we trust ourselves and we're going to do this the way that we think we should do this from a sort of a campaigning perspective. But when we were on the boat, this is, this is not something I would probably recommend to a corporate team, but we came up with like alter egos, which were like Pam and Sheila. There were two Australian girls, and if they had anything to say, they would say it to each other. So, like, if I didn't charge the headphones, and so Charlotte didn't have any headphones, it'd be like, him, you forgot to charge the headphones again. So, we're not cross, but it's like, I'm letting you know. And so, it's not Jess and Charlotte having that conversation, which is probably psychologically, from a psychologist's perspective, a bit weird, but it really worked for us. It's, that, that, that's, that's not weird at all. We, we, had, uh, we, had, we had the Red Arrows on, sorry, Red Five from the Red Arrows, Paddy Kershaw, and he pretty much said exactly that. So in their feedback... Not Australian pretty, women. Yeah, he, they didn't go, I thought, no. Australian. No. They, they, are they, these characters literally developed so much over those 45 days. They had like families and everything by the end of it. It was so weird, but fabulous. <laughs> well, I might suggest they try that, but they went for numbers. So they took the emotion away from it, exactly as you've just said. And it was, yeah, like Red One, Red Two, I thought Red Five did this. And it's not... Oh, Paddy, Tom, Dave, you did this, that, and the other. So it's not emotional. It's yeah. the role, the position. So just like Pam and Sheila, they, yeah, it's them discussing it. I think that's probably better from a corporate standpoint because Pam and Sheila were really emotional women. <laughs> no, I like Pam. I like Pam and Sheila. Yeah. 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 I think we could, we could offer that up to the Red Arrows. I think we can. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, they can come and speak. We were very worried at one point that it was going to be Pam and Sheila who come into the finish line because we started embodying these people so much. But Jess and Charlotte sometimes didn't exist on the boat. Um, but it really worked. And did they, did they, those old triggers come out when you had a decision to be made so that you, you had to make a decision? Had you discussed how you would work out who to go with or who was going to be right? So if you had to make a critical decision and you both disagreed, how would you agree to disagree? This is yin and yang with me and Charlotte. So it's, it's probably not the most, not a good bit of advice, but 
we always just knew who was going to take control of the situation. Or some person always just took control. And we had a bit of a thing, whereas if someone stuck, especially in, in the sort of the really critical situations where you don't really have loads of time to talk about something, if someone came up with an idea or instigated a plan, the other person just went, you tell me what you need me to do. Because, so, I mean, there were some times when we were training up in um, Burnham on Crouch and we were being pushed into rocks and the anchor was broken and things like that. You couldn't sit there and have a conversation about how you're going to approach something, but you had enough trust in your teammate who had started to fix the situation that you just go, you tell me what you want me to do. So, yeah, I mean, but the, other than that, we had really spoken about certain things. So we capsized one night on the Atlantic. It was a, we had a rogue way completely take us out. And we kind of knew that day we were going to capsize. The weather was so bad. And we just thought, if we're going to capsize, this is going to be the night that it happens. And we spent about 10 to 15 minutes really talking through who was going to do what based on where they were in the boat. And we just executed it. So there was some situations where there was no plan, but you trust the person who's taking control. And there was other situations where we had completely planned and we just executed it as a team. Okay. Yeah. So that, that's really interesting from like the, the, the followership last to the three ships. The followership piece, like actually you've got you've got you said like you kind of trust them you gave them the trust that actually you're going to follow that person because they're the first to act and so it's like right how do i how do i follow that's that's really interesting in terms of high performing teams often have that like that that right first to act we follow and then we'll we'll review it later we can't review it now it's not time to have a debate okay we're upside down it's cold it's wet this is the thing it's it's yeah exactly it's just because and, and that's a really uh, important point is just because someone's made the decision first doesn't always mean it's the right decision so yes in this situation it's critical because we've got no other choice but in a business or a corporate con uh, sort of world i wouldn't just go with the first decision that someone's made because you've got time sometimes to think about it well i think you've just you've kind of talked about both of those so mm. one yeah. was one decision making protocol was first to act other person follows Right, critical yeah. no time but the other one it sounds like you've already worked through in those 15 minutes the different yeah. iterations and the variables and come up with some some sops is that mm -hmm. the word sops yeah. sops some standard operating procedures military I, I knew what they were but i couldn't remember what the acronym meant but i knew what it was like a process yes. yeah yeah okay. yeah, yeah. Some SOPs. yeah it's the things i'm allergic to yeah i know but i love documentation so you're not going to win with me but ben's that's, very that's good the yin and the yang there that's we're very yin and we're very yin and yang oh i love it but you've got <laughs> you've got that you've got that those those, those two ways of following and leading which yeah. is we have we understand this scenario these multiple scenarios may come up but when we haven't planned for that and we need to react rather than respond, the other, everyone in the team follows the person who, who's, who's going in kind of the right direction. Yeah, who's got it. And then also just being comfortable within your own capabilities that you, you're not the best at everything and someone else is going to be a better leader in that situation than you might be. So yeah, I think being a good leader is sometimes stepping back and letting someone else lead. That, that's a good, well, I've got, I've got two points if I can remember. So yeah, confidence over ability. And, and actually, just as you said there, actually, sometimes if you're really confident in your decision, but actually your ability is lacking, some people look at that and think, oh, they must know what they're doing. But actually, it's just that yeah. confidence coming across. So being humble enough to realize that actually your, your ability might be lacking, but you are very confident and the experts are those around you. 100%. Yeah. I'm trying to remember the, the, the other question. I knew oh, you were going to lose it when you said, I'm trying to remember the second one. I've done it. I've, I've remembered it. Okay. So you mentioned something which actually quite a lot of businesses don't do, and that's train for the worst. So they prepare for the best. We will meet our targets. We will do this. Imagine when we're turning over this amount. But actually, rarely do they train for the what ifs. What happens if this happens and we don't meet that? 
did you train for the capsizing? What would happen in this event and that event so that it was just normal when it did occur? Not really. I mean, you can't really train for capsize. You, you can kind of know what's going to happen in those moments. But I think actually interesting with the prepare for the worst is Charlotte and I are extremely glass half full, positive, positive, positive. But by the end of the race, we were like, well, nothing's going right. Well, it's terrible. Well, the world's against us, that kind of thing. And actually, it was in those moments where we were going, I wish we could we, we prepare for the worst because, you know, we'd have people on land saying, you know, the wind is coming, you're going to get some help or no, you're going to get there. Or, you know, the, the last half of the race is always the quickest, but then we had undercurrents. So instead of being, gosh, you know, okay, we just need to get to this point and then it's going to be better or we just need to get to, you know, or, or you know, someone's telling us something's going to happen and it's going to be easier. Instead of listening to all of that going, okay, well, what's the worst that can happen? The worst that can happen is we're not moving forward. So let's just prepare for that. Because then if anything anything happens when we are moving forward, then we're already in a better position. Um, and that's actually a really interesting one. And sometimes we speak about in our corporate talks is it's prepare for the worst, not just for the best. Because it's not about being negative. It's about being pragmatic. Yeah. And I think Ben, ben will probably bring up something about the West Peak and why we called it West Peak. But I know halfway through, there was a, a little incident with a, with a boat that you might have hit. Well, th this story might tie into... Shall I ask? Shall I ask? Can I ask that? Yeah, yeah. That okay, cool. Up. Okay, you ready? Yes. So so we're kind of coming towards the end of end of the conversation. And, and there's two more bits we want to do. One is I want to ask you the West Peak question. And then we want to throw some, some one-liners at you Ooh, to see fun. how you react and respond. So the West Peak question. So we... Um, we founded the business and, and called it West Peak because lots of people, you know, we, we learn a bit of a skill and a little bit of knowledge is very dangerous. And that yeah. in mountaineering, there's lots of false peaks in mountaineering. And actually lots of people either need to be rescued from mountains or don't make it because they get to what they think is the summit. Oh, they go uh, again. That yeah. one there. And then they're like, oh my goodness, there's all that. So what I wanted to ask you and, and Ben's teed up really nicely is like, what are those moments where, where like you may have thought, you know, you'd reached it was uh, plain sailing? It was plain it's sailing. Nice. Oh, well, we, we, yeah, we thought we had in our heads that once we get into single digits of days to go, then we could start celebrating. So once we'd hit nine days to go, we were nearing the end. But nine days is still just as a quarter of the race near and near enough. So we should not. There's no way, and, and we shouldn't have started celebrating. And also those last nine days were the hardest mentally because the last 10% of something seems to take the longest. And we were faced with really, really bad weather, reverse undercurrents, so we were pushed back. So yeah, it, that was the exact moment where we thought we had reached nearing the end of summit. And actually it was the last bit was way harder almost in the first 30 days um, or 35 days. So yeah, that was a real lesson is don't celebrate early because... It, mentally it's much more difficult when you think you're at the end and then you realize it, I don't, it, you can break it down to anything it's, it's what you mentally prepare for if I know that I'm going to the gym and I'm going to do an hour and a half on the rower then I can do an hour and a half on the rower but the last 10 minutes are really really difficult always but if I go to the gym and I say I'm going to do half an hour on the rower and someone tells me I'm going to do an hour and a half I'm like oh, I can't <laughs> I couldn't it's about what you've mentally prepared for so if you know you if, if yeah so that's that's a really interesting point and I really like the way that you called your business West Peak then because that makes a lot of sense Thank you. And we didn't actually hear from the boat. So no. I get, I get, this is nine days in, and then did you a boat hit you in the dark? This is probably the next full summit before finishing. But that wasn't even a full summit. That was just one of those ones where it was like, what has just happened? So we're in the middle of the ocean, right? It's massive. But you just, you don't see, and you see other vessels, but they're ages away from you. But we were about two days out from Antigua, and it was four in the morning, so it was pitch black. And Charlotte was on the oars, and she looked up, and she saw this, what she thought was like a beautiful star. And she was like, oh, 
wonderful star. And she went, she, she woke me up. She was a bit like, you know, it's a bit, a bit weird. And I looked at the camera, I went, it's a star star that won't be waking me up. And then we're going bow to bow. And out of the pitch blackness, I'm not joking, a ship, a fishing vessel just appeared. And we ended up going, we were bow to bow with this boat. And we would have been, if we would have been completely crushed. This was a big boat. So she, Charlotte pulled the handheld steering. I got on the oars. And as we turned like this, it came up and hit us with the stern. And we just got away. Like our stern, we just got away. But if she hadn't seen this star, she was actually a bit sick. So she threw up over the side of the boat, which had never been sick. And seeing this boat, it was, that was one of the scary, but everything happened so quickly. You don't really think about it until you reflect on it. I think it's one of those ones where I'm like, I'm just not going to reflect on that. <laughs> we'll just forget that. No, As this boat was turning around and I'm me just seeing this boat come up and down the top of us in the middle of the ocean, the pitch black. I was like, we're done. So we were lucky, really lucky. It must have just, just glanced you for your hull to survive, your stern to survive. Oh yeah, literally. We, I'm not, we were like this. And it came up and down the top of us like that. It was crazy. A really good lesson about complacency. Sorry, about complacency. Then two days to go, you could have been celebrating. You knew you'd sort of world record holders by then, probably. And if you hadn't had the foresight yeah. to steer the boat, and and she hadn't had the foresight to lift up the, the handheld pillar, actually, yeah, that complacency could have killed you. This is the thing. Literally, I mean, I, I mean everyone talks about these adventures being life or death, and you're very, you know, you're so prepared going into them, and the safety is paramount. But, you know, there are things that can happen where it could be life and death. And I think you don't really consider that as an actual option until you're in that situation. I, we would have been fine. Of course we would have been. But, you know, when you see a boat coming on top of you like that, quite scary. <laughs> so that, that, was, that was your journey across the Atlantic. And now you're, you're high and dry and you're not going to do it again, are you? Or have you got something else? Not the Atlantic. We said when we finished the race that that was it, we'd never do it again. And then we've just signed up to row the Pacific because... Why not? Why not? Because, so yeah. The whole thing again. We want, yeah, we're, we're going we're, we're gonna to row the Pacific. We're rowing um, to raise money for shelter again because homelessness is still a, a cause unbelievably close to our hearts. And with the cost of living crisis and everything going on, it's just, you know, the homeless population is increasing and it's very, very difficult um, for people. And yeah, we want to break another world record, if we're being honest. <laughs> and just for context, what, what is it that you need to achieve in terms of the, the speed and the time or what's the distance across the Pacific? So it's 2,800 nautical miles. So same as the Atlantic, well, it's Atlantic 3,000. So same distance. This is a much harder race because coming off from, we go from California to Hawaii. So for the first 500 miles, you get very, very cold winds from Canada pushing you down um, and it's freezing apparently. And then you go, you get pushed back because of the land mass from California. So it's much, much more challenging in that sense. But I think we need to beat about 56 days to get the world record so yeah we're gonna gonna go for it we're gonna go hard we've started training yeah oh, i'll have to follow you through nice. some of your training so yeah yeah good it. stuff well look jess what we'll do is we'll put we'll put in in the links for this so everyone can follow you and if corporates want to get involved etc they then they'll, they'll know where to find you so we'll, we'll put we'll put that in the links um for sure before we wrap up we've got four one-liners to ask you they're rapid fire so you need to answer really really quickly we allow you one not it's not a pass but if you're stuck on one you can say right i'll come back to that but only once okay okay i'm nervous right. you get the rules okay yeah right the rules. do you want to go first yeah okay i'll go okay. first uh okay to win you must teamwork oh okay uh failure is not an option oh nice okay i need to circle back to that one actually oh Words. okay 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 um uh, start from scratch or improve something that's already there both and Can't. if you're going to choose one <laughs> Start from scratch. Okay. Okay. In five years, I will be. 
a double world record holder with a business. Yes. Oh, look at that. That's, Love that. That's good. Circle back. Circle back. I have to circle back. I said failure is not an option, but that's a personal thing that I'm trying to work through. Failure is the best thing because you can learn from it. And I really stand by that. And it, it, that goes to the sort of the starting from scratch from improving. You can fail, but it doesn't mean you failed completely. It means you've learned loads of lessons. You can prove on that. And then you can start from scratch completely as well. So you can completely fail at something and start from scratch again. And it, that's absolutely fine too. It's all about lessons learned transferable skills and not being defeated so yeah i say failure is not an option but it, of course it is but it was snap nice. fire so you got me if you take something <laughs> from it that's brilliant thank you for that that was brilliant that was a great rapid 50 minutes of uh, insight into something pretty incredible that a lot of people won't have been able to hear from before so thank you very much for your time and some business insights as well thank you for having me it was great to talk to you guys Thanks for joining us on the How They Lead podcast. We hope you've enjoyed this episode and learned something new about the world of high performance. If you have any feedback or suggestions for future episodes, please don't hesitate to reach out to us. And don't forget to subscribe to the How They Lead podcast on your favorite platform so you never miss an episode. Until next time, keep pushing yourself to reach your full potential and evolve the way you perform. And remember, just because something has always been done a certain way, doesn't mean doing it a new way can't work. Mm-hmm.